Ladies and gentlemen, episode 11, Trust the Project, Chicken Soup for the Pro Wrestler's Soul. It is Thomas Brewington, and uh, at this time, I would like to welcome my tag team partner, my hetero life mate, my best friend, the punk rock supernova, Mr. Eric Eminon. Eric, how are you? Chicken soup for the pro wrestling soul. That sounds delicious. <laughs> it usually is, my friend. <laughs> so, uh, in this episode, I want to want to get to know more about you. you. You've done a ton of podcasts. We've both done a ton of podcasts. Yes. We've told our stories before. Now let's tell it for a different audience. Okay. So, first off, your name, Eric Eminon. Yep. Where does it come from? Uh, it was a rib given to me by uh, my trainer in 2004. He more or less said, uh, you know, you, you got to go out there in an hour. We uh, don't have a name for you at the time. Uh, I was using the name Eric Shane. Um, that was the idea I wanted to go with. And uh, he, he just said it wasn't enough. He's like, there's no real character name to it. Um, so let's just call you Eric Shane Eminon. And I was like, what's Eminon? He says, it's no name backwards. And uh, when you spell it out, E-M-A-N-O-N, or backwards N-O-N-A-M-E, um, you know, it, it was given to me as a joke. I don't think it was ever supposed to go further than me in training and made a name out of it. And 10 years has gone by of me being a professional wrestler with that name and plenty of monikers, but the most important one is the Punk Rock Supernova. And you better know it. Better learn it. <laughs> so, you said it started off as a rib. How, yep. how did it make you feel knowing that it was a rib? Uh, like, truthfully, how did it make you feel? So it was weird because, like, at the time when it was given to me, I was 15. And so, yeah, 899, 1, 2, 3, 4, yeah, I'm 15, right? And um, so, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where I wasn't upset because, you know, I don't think I really understood how much of a rib it really was because I was still a kid, you know? And, uh... You know, I was just, I think I was just happy to be a part of it. I was happy to be on, at the time, it was a show in front of, like, maybe 30 kids in the back of a, a martial arts dojo. And, you know, I was just happy to be there. I was just happy to be a part of it. You know, I'd spent so much time watching the locals and training my ass off um, for it that I was just happy to be there. And uh, It got annoying when... I first came back because I took some time off um, in 2007 from training so I could finish high school and I came back right before my 18th birthday in October of that year and it, you know it was I, I came back and they were like oh it's Eric Eminon it's it's Brian's little brother and Who, who's Brian uh, he's my former tag partner uh, not in any sort of real actual physical relation to me <laughs> um, he uh, he's somebody who I technically gave him his name, and he he did an all right job of kind of running with it and making some money with it. Uh, he was the extreme Brian Eminon, and he, uh, he you know he ran with the name from 2004 2005 ish until I came back in 2008, and uh, you know we we became a tag team known as Spot Monkeys Inc. And then later, the Eminon boys. Uh, if you can't tell, we had a very strong influence from Jeff and Matt Hardy. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, he went and took the name and kind of made it his own. So when I came back, um, it, it was something where I didn't know if I really wanted to use that name anymore. 
uh, just because the fact that like it didn't feel like it was mine. You know, I was I was just kind of like a shadow, um, in the shadow of Brian, who at this point in time was one of the the major contenders for heavyweight titles in the Northeast um, for all these like little indie feds. And once again, I was a kid, so I didn't know any better. I didn't know the independent wrestling world around me aside from, you know, what I saw with trading tapes with people and Ring of Honor and stuff like that. So I didn't really know any better um, as to, you know, really how small the mountain was of the shadow I was in. But, you know, I just, I saw it as somebody who'd been doing it for three years longer than I had um, with that name. And it sucked because, you know, I was like, oh, that's kind of mine. But it's not mine because nobody knows it's mine because you use it. And um, from that point forward, it was all just a matter of me trying to take back what was mine and, you know, show everybody that I'm the only one, you know? I mean, that's, that's kind of held true because for the last four years, you and I together have uh, been a tag team. And uh, when I met you in 2013, like, you and I clicked immediately. Oh, so was, long ago. <laughs> it's only five years. Yeah, but that's five years. Like, that's a lot of time. <laughs> and, uh, like, we we clicked immediately, man. Yeah, like, and it wasn't we, even wrestling that we clicked about. No, it was, it was music. It mm-hmm. was movies. Prior life experiences. Yeah. Like, it was it was a lot about that. I remember you asked me why uh, the one show you came in, you're like, everything all right? You seem weird. And I was like, oh, my ex is being such a bitch. <laughs> like, and he's like, man, me too. And we talked about, like, we sat down and we just had, like, a conversation about our situations and, like, our, our lives before where we were at that moment. And we were like, oh, my God. Like, there's so many parallels to our lives. Like, you're, you're from a whole other side of the state, but I feel like we literally are living the same life right now. Absolutely, man. And that's, that's one thing that I, I have tried personally to, to continuously preach mm-hmm. is it doesn't matter how long you've known somebody. It doesn't matter if this is day one that you've known them or day 100 that you've known them, day 1,000 yeah. that you've known them. You know, some people are just, are just meant to meet be friends, you know, family even, like we've become. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with that being said, like you have you have this uh, gonna break it here, we have this kayfabe brother Brian. Yeah. What was what was the dynamic between you two before before you and I became a tag team? What what did you get from Brian to help you or hurt you in this in this fashion? So when it started out, me and Brian, like I came in right after because uh, he was teaming with um this guy trip out in Buffalo and he would, uh, he, he went by a, di- a bunch of different monikers and a bunch of different names. Um, he, he retired. He's, he's dead and gone. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer person. Um, <laughs> we, uh, they were the spot monkeys Inc. essentially. And when I debuted in March of 2008, it was like maybe a, a show went by or two shows went by and Trip got hurt. He, he, he'd done something to his knee um, and was going to be on the shelf for like four to six months. Fall off a treadmill. Wait, was it a fall off a treadmill? Yep. All right. So he fell off a treadmill. Um, and I technically inherited my first two tag team titles. Um, one of them was OSPW out in Buffalo, New York, and the other one was Next Era Wrestling in Rochester, New York. And um, they just kind of handed him over to me. And we're like, hey, you're a tag team champion now. And I felt like, for me, it was too much too soon, Uh, and it kind of developed my secondary 
ego Eminon persona that I've gotten well under control. It's kind of like the, uh, my ego Eminon is kind of like the Hulk to my Bruce Banner. And, um, it bites me in the ass more often than not, but I, I think after 10 years, I've kind of got it decently under control. Um, but what ended up happening was, uh, Brian, uh, gave me the tag titles and it became less of us being equals and more of me being the sympathy factor for his heroics. And it got progressively worse over time where I was getting volunteered for stupid spots, um, things that were going to physically hurt me. Um, so he would look better when he came into the ring. And once again, I was a kid. I didn't know any better. These were like the two main spots that were actually like putting trust in me. Like I got, I, I was punished by my trainer uh, for my first actual out of state trip because I didn't take it with anybody. I took it with a friend of mine. And I went down to Pennsylvania and I worked heel for the first time in my career um, in a tag team. Uh, we were known as Terror and Tinseltown. I was the Tinseltown, and he was the Terror, and it was it was perfect. It was it was a fun little little shtick we had, and it was my first real pro wrestling payday outside of New York State. And I remember coming back in, and I was told that if I went out of state with this guy again, uh, they were going to fire me essentially from my home fed. And so I got scared to actually travel because I didn't you know I didn't once again I didn't know any better, and that was another. It was another Brian rule where I was told, hey, man, you should have gone without me. You shouldn't have gone out of state without me. And I feel like that was more of him trying to get more bookings and scare me into taking him with me than it was him trying to protect me, like he said it was. Because back then it was all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to look over you. I'm here to be your protector. But it was, it was more like, uh, I'm here to hold you back. I'm here to make sure you don't surpass what I'm doing. And, you know, we did that for like, it was just like four or five years, man, where I just was constantly just getting beat up and broken down and wrestling just wasn't fun. And it sucked because like, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I mean, I've, I've physically done it now for more than half of my life. You know, I've been training to be a professional wrestler and participating in professional wrestling events for more than half of my life. And so it's, it's all I know. It's all I've ever wanted to do, and it got boring. It got, it got like I would dread going to shows. And 2010 rolled around. September 2010 rolled around, and my home fed closed. Shut, shut up shop. Uh, you know, it, nobody really saw it coming. Nobody really saw any writing on the wall because everything that happened, discussion wise, happened behind closed doors. Uh, my tag partner sold off his half of the company, lost out on like $20,000 worth of money, um, a bunch of shit got stolen from a safe at the venue, and I think that was really the big downfall of the company, and um, yeah, man, like he, Brian taught me how not to be a douchebag in this industry, and how to respect people as actual brothers, and honestly, a lot of the guys that were shitty to me in the indies when I was in my first four years, like, you know, the, uh, the, your, your death to 40 mile vets, like that does not ring more true in my first half of my career. Like there's, there's not a truer statement. 
You know, it was it was the 40 mile vets that were telling me that I was never going to leave New York. You know, it was the same guys that were telling me I was never going to be a heavyweight. The same t- the guys that were telling me I was never going to be more than a, a curtain jerker or a mid carder. And you know, these these guys were the driving force as to why I created the IndyCard Mafia because these uh, so called you know vets, these 40 mile vets, these bitter vets. You know, and I, I can't even say vets because these guys are wrestling what 12 times a year. You know. So it's one of those things where these guys were the driving force to bring back that brotherhood because they're always talking about a brotherhood. They're always talking about, oh, man, do you remember when wrestling was a brotherhood and people weren't just always trying to fuck their sisters? And, like, you know, that was that was the big driving force. It was like, I want that brotherhood that everyone was always talking about. And, like, I knew when I met you, man, like, show number two when I saw you and you came over and you shook my hand and you hugged me and you're like, hey, man, how you been? And you actually showed an interest in me as a person outside of me as a wrestler that's when I knew we had something special and I was like you know what let's let's jump on this let's make some money let's have some fun let's fucking let's rack up some miles and let's prove everybody wrong that I'm not going to be anything more than a mid carter or a curtain jerker let's prove them that I'm going to be more than just a, a cruiserweight wrestler that I'm going to be more than just a fucking beat up guy in the ring I'm not I'm not here to job on the indies man like I'm here to do work I'm here to get noticed and I'm here to make money and have fun and I knew the second I invited you in the second, our first match that we had as a tag team, like I knew the moment that you came in and you jumped out Cryptic Keegan from the UWC, uh, that moment I knew when you started beating him with his own jacket or his vest, it was his vest, right? Uh, it was my vest. It was your vest. My vest. <laughs> you hit him in the face with it. And I was like, you know what? I think something special is going to happen here. I think we, we have stumbled upon something great. And I remember we pushed each other and like we constantly pushed each other and it was the IndyCard Mafia was just started to make each other better. You know, it was started to push you to be a better wrestler, to push me to be a better wrestler because we weren't bullshitting each other like everybody else was. You know, uh, people would come to the back after a garbage match and get pats on the back and be like, dude, you guys stole the show. Good job. And I'm like, no, they didn't. Like the show hasn't even gone on yet. And that's ego. I'm not talking, but the show hasn't even gone on yet. Like. You got guys like me, you got guys like Tommy, uh, you got guys like, at the time, Cassius Kutcher, who were going out there and just slaying. You know, I went out there with my junior television championship in the main event of an OSPW show and wrestled Cassius Kutcher for the OSPW Heavyweight Championship. Like, we had a killer match. We had one of the, we had a, a, I I would argue that that was one of the most memorable singles matches of all time at OSPW simply because of the fact that it was the first time that the OSPW Junior Television Champion and the OSPW Heavyweight Champion fought in the main event of a show for the heavyweight title. I could have left with two weight classes worth of titles that show. All right, Connor. You know? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You fucking do nothing. (laughs) Like, but that would have, like, it was a cool moment, man. And that's... Like that's really all I care about in wrestling now is cool moments. Like I, I, I don't I don't care about a win and loss records. You know, titles are nice, champions are you know, championships are nice. Um, and I'll gladly take them for the resume. I just want to put that out there. I'm gonna preface the statement. I will <laughs> gladly take championships for the resume. But at the end of the day, man, if I go out there and I make an impact and I, you know, I, I put on the show that I know I can put on, and I have a good match. I don't care what the win or loss is. Like, if, if, if there's memories made, man. And that's another thing. Like, Brian would go out there and wrestle these, like, so, like, 
telegraphed. Like all of his movements were telegraphed and you always knew that X, Y, and Z was going to happen. And I, I wanted to do away with that. You know, I wanted to, that's one of the driving forces that Brian gave me was that I wanted to do away with everything that he taught me. I wanted to do the opposite. And that's just my rebel nature inside. Like I was told how to do things and I was told how to construct things. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take your status quo. I'm going to put it to the side. I'm going to take your structure and I'm going to put it to the side. Now I'm going to find what works for me. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was planning things the way I shouldn't have been planning them. But it was different than everybody else. And that scared people. I mean, it scared me because, you know, I was stepping outside of my comfort zone. I was stepping outside of what I knew and what I was taught and what I was told because I just didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. Like we would do seminars before shows with people. And I remember this one show, we did a seminar with Cloudy and he taught us a bunch of Lucha stuff, but he specifically taught us one of the, uh, you lock the hand, you run up the rope, cross body arm drag. Everybody did it on that show that took the seminar. Everybody. And it's like, you took something special, you took something cool and you marked out for yourself and you put yourself more or less on this crazy pedestal of, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to show that I can do this arm drag the best, but you're not realizing that the guy who taught it to you is on the show doing it. And then everyone else in the seminar that's on the show is doing it. I mean, hell, I saw two of them in one match from two different people. Oh. Oh. And and so it's just like, you got to, a lot of people didn't want to learn from that. You know, they didn't want to learn from that experience, but you know, it's, it's, it's the little things like that, that I would take from these shows and these people like Brian and my trainer, Tiger Smith, which I mean, if you don't know who that is, you're one of the many, you know, at this point I could say I was trained in, in Rochester, New York. And if it's not by Colin Delaney, then people really probably don't know who it is. Like, and, and people can argue that all day. Like, there's, there's specific names that if you're from Western New York, you'll know a Hellcat, you'll know a Tiger Smith, you'll know Colin Delaney, you'll know Mark House. Um, you know, guys like Super Beast who helped take part and train me. Um, you'll know names like that if you're in Western New York. But more often than not, unless you're in a specific area where that person has been, nobody cares. So, let me ask you this question. Yeah. What have you done to let yourself stand out more since the incidents we just talked about, since since your Brian Eminon era, yeah. the beginning of the IndyCard Mafia, who are you now? What are you doing differently now? What have you learned now that has changed you for the better? What do you do now that maybe you feel you shouldn't be doing, but you, you can't find that, that off switch? What, what advice can you give to those listening to do different? Be comfortable in your own skin. It took me six years in this industry to be comfortable in my own skin, uh, doing everything everyone else wanted me to do. And it just wasn't me doing me. And that was my biggest thing was until I met Tommy, uh, my biggest thing was I was just doing what I was told because I knew that's how I was going to keep my spot. And when I met Tommy, I essentially threw the book out the window. I said, fuck this. I'm rewriting this book. We're going to have fun. And that's when we started the IndyCard Mafia. And that's when I got comfortable in my own skin. I got comfortable doing what I wanted to do, telling people no. 
Like that's another thing too. Don't be afraid to tell someone no. If it's a bad idea or you don't feel comfortable doing it or it goes against every one of your beliefs, just don't do it. Like, and that's something that I I cannot stress enough. There have been so many times where I've lost spots because I've told the promoter no. And I'm not any worse off than I was before by telling him no and losing that spot because I found a way to better my spot somewhere else. You know, if, if I'm comfortable in my own skin doing what I'm doing and I'm able to market it and be successful with it and I can prove that I have a track record of doing it, you'll, you'll get the confidence from other people to be able to do that wherever you want to go. Um, my problem was is I spent too long being in the mold of Jeff Hardy. But that's what the promoters wanted from me. They wanted me to be a risk taker. They wanted me to be a daredevil. They wanted me to do stupid dives and, you know, have my Jeff Hardy Undertaker match against every big guy out there. But I could only go out there and die so many times before it started physically killing me. You know, I could only go out there and get beat up by so many big guys who just beat the shit out of me until I stood up and said, you know what? No, I'm not doing this. Give me guys to wrestle my size so I can show what I'm worth. Give me guys my size so I can I can give them the same opportunity that I know I deserve. And once I started being more specific about what I wanted to do, and once I started telling people, no, I'm not gonna go out there and do that. I remember one show, I I was I was having major car issues. My I there was a, I literally just had a new motor put into my car so I could start traveling to shows because my other motor had blown. And the guy who installed it forgot to tie it on a ground wire. So the ground wire kept hitting my motor and blowing a fuse in my car. So I told the promoter, listen, I'm having troubles with my car right now. I'm going to try to get there as soon as humanly possible. You know, please bear with me. I'm going to be there. He says, okay, I have something really special planned for you. It's going to be really awesome for you. I think it's going to be great. Turns out the really special thing, uh, Sean Cooper booked me in the pre-show spot doing the Hans Gruber challenge. Now, Hans Gruber fucking spoiler alert for anybody who's too stupid to realize body types was Bishop. He was, he's double duty on a show. He put on a mask, acted like Arnold Schwarzenegger and would just beat the shit out of whatever young green kid was in the ring with him. The special thing he had for me was a pre-show spot, not a match that I had to rush to Buffalo for in a car that was dying to not get paid. And I literally, I, I remember I got there. I did the spot. He told me what it was. I just looked at him and went, yep. And then I went and did it. I got my stuff. I, I left before intermission. I got home at like 8 o'clock. It was so nice. <laughs> I was home before it was even dark out. And I remember getting home and getting all these text messages from people going, hey, is everything all right? I heard you had an emergency. I was like, no, I just didn't want to be there anymore. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But at the same point in time, the promoter was like, ugh, I kind of pissed him off. Like, I shouldn't have done that. And that's when people started taking me seriously there was like, I I busted my ass to get there. And after that, I told him never again. This is not happening ever again. You do this to me again, I will quit. And everyone was like, wow, okay. Now, here's the thing. Here, here's a question. Mm-hmm. You always are telling, well, not you personally, yeah. but you as as a general whole of the wrestling community are always telling young guys to pay their dues, earn their spots. Do you feel 
like a situation like that is a level and a limit that should not be reached because essentially what it was was it was a job spot it was a squash spot yeah. on an indie card yeah how it wasn't even an indie card it was a pre-show it was oh. before the show was even taped so it wasn't even physically taped oh so okay it was to get the crowd into the show it was it was it was what happened was it was essentially like uh, you remember how um, in your face wrestling used to do like the or no not even in your face OSPW used to do it they used to do the karate things before the show yeah it was essentially that but me getting beat up by Hans Gruber so it was a physical spot that you didn't even get footage for yeah there's pictures there's pictures there's pictures and I went out there I went out there in my Ramon shirt a pair of shorts my boots and I, I don't even remember if I had taped up. I think I might have taped up, but, like, it was so half-assed. And I went out there and was just obnoxious. I was over the top, like, like, because at the time I was, like, 160 pounds. So there was, there was very little muscle on me. But I'm, like, walking around with, like, invisible delts. <laughs> like You had invisible lat syndrome? Yeah, invi- yeah, like, everything. Just invisible everything. I'm just walking around, big shoulders, big back, big chest that aren't actually there. <laughs> and it, it was just, I was being obnoxious because I was just so frustrated with the spot. But to answer your question, man, like, it's, I don't think that job spots like that should be on the Indies. Like, I get, like, if you got a kid who is, you know, young in the business but can bump and you know will make a guy look good and you toss him a couple bucks for like coming in like as a student being like hey I really appreciate you doing that for me we're gonna take care of you now but this was like two years into my career and I was a tag champion or a former tag champion at that point and like I was I was known in this in in that locker room you know I'm not saying like you know I was a name but I was saying like I had done more than most of those guys there and so like when I got asked to do that spot I was like you you could have told me on the phone what it was instead of just getting my hopes up and saying you had something special for me because that's not special there's nothing special about getting your ass kicked and not even getting one move of offense like I we did it, it literally went I'm Hans Gruber what's your name Eric Eminon crowd pop you're gonna do the Hans Gruber challenge and see if you can beat it today jumping jacks begin one two three he puts me in a full Nelson Slams me down and stomps me out. There was literally zero offense. Zero offense, zero, like, crowd interaction was there because I made damn sure that people were going to remember it. But it was just one of those things where I got beat up and that was it. You know? So, like, I don't think that should ever happen. You know, I think that that's an old way of thinking. I think it's a very old way of thinking. I mean, this is a guy who was... Quote, unquote, I'm doing the bunny ears with my hands, uh, trained by Al Snow. And it's like, I've spoken with Al Snow. I've done seminars with Al Snow. That's not an Al Snow way of thinking. Al Snow is all about building people in any which way they can. And he's, all the seminars I've done with him, that's all he's been about, is making stuff make sense. There's no sense made in there. You completely killed my character for somebody who doesn't even wrestle. Or a character that doesn't even wrestle at that point. You know, it's supposed to be a comedy spot, but there was no comedy there. It was me getting beat up, you know? And it's like, it's not like I did anything wrong. I was just being punished for not showing up and doing ring crew. That's essentially what I thought it was. So, now, once again, 
question posed. Do you feel like that's an appropriate way of doing things? No. Do you feel do you feel like as if you were taken advantage of then? Absolutely. And I think it had to do with the fact that they knew I wasn't going to say no. You know, and that's why after that I made very clear that if that happened again, I'd be gone. And it was one of those situations where had he told me when I was back in Rochester, hey, we're going to put you in the Hans Gruber Challenge tonight. We don't have a match for you, but this is, like, our way to get you in front of the crowd. Like, go out and just make it your own. I would have been happier. You know, I, I wouldn't have had an issue with it had they told me ahead of time. It, you know, because regardless, I you know, I, I probably would have rode with somebody instead of driving my death trap car out there. Like, I literally, I got, the worst part was is, that night I drove out there, I got my car stuck in Niagara Falls, and it cost me $300 to tow it home. So, like, it was just a bad day. It was a real bad day. And I just remember sitting there with my ex-girlfriend, and I was just looking at her, and I'm like, I'm miserable right now. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And that was, like, that was really one of those moments where I contemplated leaving wrestling just because I was so just... I didn't feel appreciated. I felt... I felt underappreciated, underutilized, most certainly underpaid. <laughs> um, but it's just, I don't know, man. It, I don't think anybody should ever have to go through that. And, like, I, I understand there's, there's times where it's needed uh, I, on bigger indie shows. Like, if you get a company that's got, like I said, you got a student that you know can bump. And you got a big guy you really want to build. That's an opportunity to get the kid out there and get him in front of an audience for his first time. Yeah, it's not going to be a win. It's nothing to phone home about. But guess what? It's your moment. It's your it's your it's your breaking of the ice to get out there and see what it feels like to be out there. You know, and I think in that way it would work. But to take somebody who's done so much for the company up until that point and was, uh, you know, a, a well-known babyface, a well-known commodity there, like. I just I felt like I, it was burying me in a way, and you know I, it's it's not like I didn't make my intentions known. It's not like I didn't make my intentions known that I wasn't going to be there for Ring Crew that morning, even though the show's leading up there. I was there for Ring Crew before some of the Buffalo guys were, you know. And I, I think that's why I was so upset about it. All right, well we're gonna take a quick break, and then uh, we'll be back with more Eric Eminon. If you guys like video games, if you guys like hearing loud mouths curse, swear, and play, you know, pretty fun games, go to twitch.tv slash jumpboostgaming and jump on in. Every Friday we play Fortnite, we throw a couple streams in there in between, all around a good time with some good brothers. Do yourself a favor, that's twitch.tv slash jumpboostgaming. Alright, and we're back. So now, Eric, let me ask you this question. We know about Eric Eminon, the wrestler. Who is Eric Eminon, the man? Who really are you? Outside of the ropes, outside of outside of your gear, who are you? I'm still a punk rock kid at heart. I mean, <laughs> that speaks for it. But, you know, I'm a punk rock kid who lives in a suburban home with a suburban family and you know, I got two kids and a wife, and I'm growing up, and it's weird. But, you know, looking back, there's two things I wanted in life. I wanted a wrestling career, and I wanted a family. And I have both. 
Um, I'm still just as obsessed with video games, if not arguably more now than I was when I was a child. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's really it. Like I'm an avid sports guy. Like I play video games more than I think I'd like to admit. Don't tell my wife. Uh, you know, I just like, I, I like to have fun. Like it's, it's, I'm very like team building aspects part of my life. Like I love team based sports and team based games. Cause it's just some of these things where you get like, like me and Tommy, we play the ever-living piss out of Fortnite. Like, more more than I think any adult should admit. But we play, we play Fortnite because it's, like, it's just ways to, like, connect and, like, stay close to your friends and stay close to the people you consider family. Like, we, we have a small community of people that we are always just busting balls with each other just because, like, we're family. It's, it's a small little family we've developed. And we have so much fun with it. And it's the same for, like, my family. Like, my family, like, my kids love sports. My kids love wrestling. My son, his favorite wrestler, not me, it's Shinsuke Nakamura. I'm not even number two. I'm not even number three. I'm not even number four. I'm number five on his list. And he's got a pretty solid list. And so it's like... Do you remember what that list was? Oh, I do. It's, it's uh, It's Shinsuke Nakamura's number one. And if you ask my son who his favorite wrestler is, he'll sing you Shinsuke Nakamura's theme song. And then he'll tell you it's Shinsuke. Uh, number two is Finn Balor, or as he calls, Snake Guy. <laughs> number three is Uncle Tommy. Hi. <laughs> number four is Terrell Kenneth. And I'm number five. And when I said, I'm number five, he goes, you can be four. And I was like, don't patronize me. <laughs> I'm not even my daughter's first favorite wrestler. My daughter's first favorite wrestler, Bailey. Second, John Cena. Third, me. So I'm like, I'm okay with that list. Like... I can't even see number two, let's be honest. And number one, like, number one's character, quite literally designed for my daughter. Like, if, if, if my daughter was to ever be a wrestler character, it would be Bailey. Like, m- there, there's no argument there. No, no, I can agree. And so, like, that's, that's the big thing is, like, my kids love wrestling. That being said, it's not like a forced love for wrestling where I was like, Hey, you guys should watch us. No, it was like a natural progression of like, they would see it on every so often and like maybe see like the beginning of a pay-per-view and would just be into it. They'd be enthralled by it. They'd be hooked to it. And it wasn't just like, you know, I was forcing them to sit down and watch it. They wanted to sit down because I was interested in it. And so like, I think that's why it matters most to me that they like it. Um, but you know, that it's just, like, my son loves sports. My son loves baseball and football and hockey. My daughter loves soccer and baseball. Like, so it's just, it's weird being a family man in this business, too, by the way. I have to say that. Like, I never thought I'd be a family man in the wrestling business. Well, why, why do you say it's weird? What, what makes it weird? Well, all the bitter vets who told me you can't have a family and be a wrestler. Like, <laughs> they had failed marriages, and, like, I've seen so many failed marriages in professional wrestling because, uh... You know, arguably the 40-mile vets were unfaithful to their wives, you know, an hour from home, and it blew up in their face. I mean, that's their problem. Like, good for them. It's, you know, it's not my life. I'm not going to live it. You know, I'm not going to tell them how to live it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very faithful to my wife. Like, I believe in, yeah. once again, I believe in a good, solid team. 
my wife is my tag team partner in life. You know, she's the she's the yin to my yang. She's the the one who keeps me balanced when I'm stressed out about wrestling, or if I'm if I get like down about a bad match, which happens often. I like I get down on myself about like subpar performances, but that's weird because subpar is in golf is better. But like you know what I'm saying, it's it's a weird <laughs> way. It, the language between the English and actual English doesn't make sense but like whenever I get down on myself about wrestling or like life she's there to fucking just lift me up and make me feel better like and she doesn't have to do that like that's not her job to make me feel better but like she does it because she wants to see me happy and you know she pushes me to be the best me that I can be and that goes back to the whole being comfortable in your own skin man like she always told me like you can do this without Brian and I was like ah but you know he's he's my tag team partner and it's all I've ever known she goes stop being scared and just do it I was like you know I think you got a point and it was just like that little push I needed from her to like tell myself I could be better and then when I started bringing Tommy around she's like I love Tommy and I was like I love Tommy too Like It's weird Like Tommy is like That little brother Like He's like my little Big brother It's weird He's my big little brother Big little brother Big little brother But like It's so strange Cause it's like I Like I, So I have Like I come from A very supportive family Like my parents Took me to wrestling training Once a week Like when I was going And they would take me To this school And so like when me and my little brother were wrestling, like, in the backyard when we were children, um, like, I, I said in his uh, my speech for him at his wedding, I said, like, wrestling always felt weird because I always wanted him to be there and in my corner because, like, that was what I always wanted when I was a backyard wrestler with him was, like, him to be part of my tag team. And, you know, it just it never happened. It never worked out that way. Like, my brother was a referee for two years. That was a fun little fact about my brother that, like, a lot of people don't know. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was, uh, we called him Pistol Pete. He used to dra- uh, dress like the classic WCW ref with, like, the bow tie and the blue shirt. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was 13 in refing for this company, and he was great at it. Um, and I think he just kind of fell out of love with wrestling because, you know, he had, he had a lot of other things that he cared about and was passionate about, and I just don't think refereeing was one of them. And like I said, he was good at it. But I said in my speech for him at his wedding, um, because I was his best man, I said to him, I was like, you know, you've always been super supportive and you've always been there for me. And there was always that one thing missing in my career and that was you being in my corner as my tag team partner. And I always wanted that. But now, like Aubrey, your, your wife just gained an amazing tag team partner, somebody who's going to be supportive, be there for her, and he has a hell of a right hook. Like, and that's a shoot. Like, my brother's got a ridiculous right hook. But, like, um, you know, it's just, like, I come from a very supportive family. So, like, that's all I've ever wanted outside of wrestling was a supportive family. And then when I got that with my wife and I got that with my kids, like, it just made everything easier. And, I mean, life isn't easy. And, like, anything that's easy isn't really worth having. Like, I want, I don't want to look back on my life and go, man, what an easy trip that was. You know, I want to look back and have stories. I want to have hardships because those hardships are going to make my success in, in everything that happens that much more worth it. Absolutely. Life is about peaks and valleys. Just like just like a match. Just like storytelling in a match. You yeah. have the highs, you have the lows, and it's all about, you know, what you do to bring it all together that makes it matter in the end. 
So, interesting fact about you that I don't know if I don't know how many listeners have seen your personal Facebook. Yeah. Uh, you have recently celebrated over 200 days of sobriety. Yep. How how has that journey been? I I don't want to get you know too personal unless you want to. No, go of ahead. course. Um. So over the last four years, of course, I've I've seen everything. We have had. We have had a lot of uh, of long nights yeah. of drinking. What what made you want to become a, a sober person? Almost almost straight edge even. You don't smoke. Nope. You you no longer drink. You don't do drugs. What what made you change your lifestyle? What what brought the, the it was it was obviously quite sudden. Yeah. Uh, what made you want to change? What made you want to become better? So I tried being sober towards the end of my first year of marriage. Um, I was not happy with myself. Um, and I thought like a drastic change would be for the best. And so my New Year's resolution, uh, cause I was married in February of 2014 and yeah, 2014, right? Yeah. Cause I've been married, no, 2013, 2014, 2014. Yeah, 2014, because I just celebrated my four-year anniversary at the beginning of this year. And so, um, my first, or my New, Year, my New Year's resolution that year was, um, going into 2015, was to stop drinking. And I made it a month and a half. And it was tough, man, because, like, I really just wanted to be sober. And it was more for, like getting in better shape at that point than it was anything else and like I just wanted to be in better shape and you know I started getting in better shape and I went ah well I can have a drink here and there and then I just kind of started spiraling again and like I I grew up with my dad who drank a lot and it put a lot of strain on my family when I was a, a teenager and so like I saw myself starting to go down that path and was like what am I doing like, I don't want to drink all the time. It's a waste of money. I wake up feeling like garbage the next day. And, like, my wife travels a lot for work. And, like, I travel a lot for wrestling. So, it was like when she was gone, I was substituting companionship with alcohol. And it was not good. Like, it was, it was, I was arguing with a lot of people for no reason. I was picking fights with people for no reason. I was in a bad mood all the time for no reason. And one day I just said, you know what? I'm, I've had enough. And I gave away all my liquor. I poured what little beer I had left down the drain, uh, returned all the cans. And, you know, I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm just going to be done. And then two weeks goes by and I was like, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling less bloated. I'm feeling less sluggish. I'm feeling more, more in touch with myself than I have in a while. And my wife came up to me and said, Hey, I got something to tell you. And I said, what's that? She goes, I haven't had a drink in two weeks. When she said that, I was like, is she going to tell me she's pregnant? Like, is that what that is? It wasn't. Uh, but you know, she goes, no, I just want to be healthy. And so I stopped drinking and I was like, when did you stop drinking? And she gave me the day. It was literally, she made the decision to stop drinking the day I made the decision to stop drinking and neither one of us told each other. And she goes, well, I didn't want to tell you in that two week period because of the fact that if I had failed, I didn't want you to judge me. 
And I was like, I didn't tell you because, like, essentially the same thing. And so we've both been sober now this entire time. And it's, it's and like, no lie, it's been rough, man. Like, you know, I took my brother to a, his bachelor party and there was just booze everywhere. And, you know, people are always offering to buy me drinks. And it's like, I would a year ago. But now I'm just, I'm so happy not drinking and saving that money and investing that money into something else. You know, give, you know buying my kids something cool over buying alcohol or taking them on a lunch date or, you know, going to the zoo or, you know, stuff like that, man. Like it just, I, I would rather spend the money on something else at this point than, than the alcohol and the alcohol was getting expensive. That was the other thing was like the money aspect of it. Like indie wrestling is not cheap. Uh, you know, we're, we're not making a ton of money contrary to popular belief with how much we wrestle uh you know there's been times where i've come home with maybe 25 to 30 more dollars than what i left with you know it was the trip was paid for and that's good but like that 30 dollars has got to go into food it's got to go into my mortgage it's got to go into my car payment like yeah it's it's what it is and, you know, we're all, we're striving to make that, that more money. But, you know, at the same point in time, like I was cutting out a major cost by not drinking. And, you know, for those who are out there and do drink, I mean, even if it's not for the fact that you don't think it's getting out of hand, or even if you do have the money to spend on it, man, just like, think about it. Like, do you really want to waste all those calories when you could better yourself in the gym? And I'm not trying to preach like, you know, health on anybody but like there's so many more things that you could spend it on like if you think about how much you spend on alcohol in a year it's like on average $600 okay for $600 you can buy a to and from ticket to the Bahamas for a flight you buy a vacation for yourself if you save that money and that's on average like that's like I'll say I was spending probably $100 a month on, on booze easy easy I mean, you think about it in retrospect. That's not hard to do. No, not at all. You know, you buy you buy a dollar beers, three dollar shots. Yeah, and like, and that's not, that's just going to a bar. Or vice versa. Yeah, if you go if you go to uh, just a, a regular like, you know, you go buy a pack of beer. You go buy a thirty rack of beer. You know, you could spend eighteen twenty bucks on a thirty rack. You know, if you get good beer, and you're 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 going out and buying like Guinness you're paying like $10 for a four pack. And when I was drinking Guinness, man, I was going through like five or six, four packs every two weeks. Like, you know, I was drinking four five, six beers a night. Like it was not good. And so I, you know, I just thought about that. I was like, you know, I could spend, I could save all this money and spend it on my wife, spend it on my kids, save up for a trip, do something cool. Like me and my wife got to go to Salem, like randomly, just, just, She's like, you know what? I got this meeting out there. Um, you know, I got a lot of work to do. Do you want to drive for me? And we'll have somebody watch the kids and we'll go to Salem the next day? Yeah, okay. Like, you're telling me we can go see something that we've been talking about seeing for six years of our relationship? Yeah, of course. And it was one of the most fun trips we've ever been on. And it came because of the fact that we stopped spending money on alcohol, you know? And that's that's really what it came down to is like having that support system and not having to drink and not like, don't get me wrong. I want to drink, 
but I know I don't need to drink now. And that's what my issue was originally, was I felt like I needed to drink. I felt like I was surrounding myself with people who wanted me to drink with them. And, you know, I felt like I needed to drink because I wanted to appease them. And I wanted them to, you know, I wanted to fit in. Because, like, that was, that's another thing, too, is, like, I drank to fit in with people. Because uh, I wasn't exactly the most popular kid in high school. So I didn't really fit in. And so when I started drinking and I more or less let down my guard and became more friendly with people, that's when I started realizing, oh man, the more I drink, the more friendly I get. The more friendly I get, the more people want to talk to me. Oh my God, I could be popular if I drink. And it wasn't the case. I was just drinking myself into oblivion and feeling miserable about it for the next week. Because I look at my bank account, I'm like, God, I can't believe I spent all that money just so people would like me, you know? And Yeah, people usually like you when you have money. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I bought all those drinks, but uh, I got $0 in my bank account. Let's go. You know, and it just, it, it made me miserable, man. And like, I, it took me kind of just looking back one night. Like I, I literally, my kids were in bed and I shotgunned a beer in my kitchen. I shotgunned a beer by myself in my kitchen. And I put it down on the counter and I looked at the can and I said, what has happened to me? And I, like, for me to have that moment where I said, what has happened to me? Like, that was my my realization moment. Like, I need to really look at what I'm doing right now. Because I'm literally shotgunning beers by myself in my kitchen. I'm doing a social activity that you do at parties with other people by myself. And that was really it, man. Like, that was my, that was my oh shit moment where I was like, man, you're going to be miserable and drunk if you keep going this way. And... I've been so happy. Like, I've, I've felt more focused, more energized. I've literally, I know what my goal is. I've focused on it. Like, I'm more creative when I'm not drinking, you know? And that's, that's the most important thing is, like, being a graphic designer. Like, I was just drinking away my creativity because I'd get drunk and go, eh, I don't really want to. I don't want to do anything. I just want to drink and sit here and watch TV. Which was so boring. Like, now that I look at it, I wasted so much time just sitting on my couch drinking by myself where I could have been creating. Like, I feel like I lost so many hours of creativity by, like, stifling it with with alcohol. So, now that you you took alcohol out of the equation... you You mentioned you being a graphic designer. You mentioned creativity. What... What inspires you to create? What inspires you to make something, you know, make beautiful art? What What is your motivation? Well, I mean, I've always been an artist. That's my thing is like, even back in high school, I remember taking like design courses and art courses and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I just, I like to draw and it came from my dad. My dad is an artist. My dad is somebody who was given a full ride scholarship for architecture and instead he had me, you know, he had a full ride scholarship to the Rochester Institute of Technology, if I'm not mistaken, um, for architecture. And instead he had me, you know, 
And so I feel like I kind of owe it to him to not like follow in his footsteps, but like to not give up on my dream. You know, I don't feel I don't feel like he gave up on his dream because like, you know, he came from a, a, a another supportive family, and uh, you know, he still draws all the time. Like he drew my daughter a bunch of pictures, and you know, it just. I feel like his art and his creativity kind of, like, flows through my fingertips. I know it's, like, it sounds cheesy, but, like, I really feel like that's a lot of it is, like, he gives me inspiration, and that just kind of keeps my brain going, and once, like, he gave me that part of my brain, you know, <laughs> and and he, when I was a kid, he would draw pictures of, like, this crazy cat and this crazy clown. Like, I specifically remember these two drawings. And he draws them all the time still. And it's the funniest thing. Like, he'll leave them randomly on my whiteboards in my house when he stops by. And I'll find them and I'll laugh so hard. But, um, like, his his creativity and his art has always been, like, an inspiration of mine. And when I started doing design, my whole mindset was, like, independent wrestling doesn't really have good designers out there when well, that's when I started I mean there's tons of great designers out there now um, especially people like uh, Tara Calloway at Dropkick Depression like I love her art that she does for all of her shirts like the uh, pro wrestling is here for everybody tees like those are some of like it is such a simplistic like easy design but it looks so good and I'm like I was like god damn I wish I would have thought of that before because like it's so simple and, but, like, that's what wrestling needs is, like, clean, simple designs that, like, when you see them, you're just like, damn, that's good, you know? And, um, you know, there's tons of other designers out there that put out quality stuff now, but, like, my original thought process was, like, I don't want to be the same indie wrestler who's wearing red and black just like everybody else in the locker room who's got the black T-shirts with the red logo on it. Like, I wanted to be different. I wanted to put out stuff that people could wear outside of wrestling. You know, that's why I did the Mighty Duck t-shirts. That's why I did the IndyCard Mafia Crest t-shirts. That's why I did the Spoof NWO t-shirts. That's why I did the Propaganda t-shirts, the, the Make Wrestling Great Again t-shirts, because they sold like hotcakes when Donald Trump was about to be elected president, and so many people bought them, and I made so much money off of them. But, like, you know, it was just make stuff that people would want to wear outside of wrestling. You know, make stuff that's spoofs, that's funny. The Guardians of the Indies logo. The um, the the new uh, Ramon-styled takeover tee. Like, stuff like that, man. Like, I just... I really want people to appreciate art for what it is. And that's art. And so when I design, I want people to appreciate it for the fact that it's art. That it's something that's unique. That it's... You can't find anywhere else. And there's, there's stuff that I've put out that has been... Sp- Booths of logos like I did a logo for Chris Caden that was literally the 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 New York Mets logo but it was changed to be specific to him I hand drew the skyline of the city of Rochester in the background of that like it's something that wasn't easy to do but I knew if I executed it properly and I did it right that it was going to blow somebody's mind and when he got the design he said this far exceeded what I what I had expected because it was one of those like flash sales that I did where I was like sports logo spoofs $50 
flat rate. Just give me 25 up front, I'll do it. You give me the other 25 when I'm done, let's go. I did a Cowboys one, I did uh, uh, Miami Heat one, and like they were just fun logos to do. And it was just random things where I got done and yeah, they took me a half an hour, 45 minutes a logo, but when I got done with them, I was proud of them because it was art. It was a it was a hot take on something that you'll never see like that again. And you know, it was very specific for that person. Um, Jack Jamison, I think, did a Green Bay Packers style one, which was ridiculous because I had to make a J in a logo for a G. <laughs> like so, like there was just there was a ton of really cool ones that I did. And, you know, I continue to do crazy spoof logos for t-shirts. And, like, my big inspiration for art, man, is just... Art itself is dying. Because creativity is dying. And we're in a... We're in a time now with art where people want to do what the cool trend is. But nobody wants to stay true to their roots. Like, you know, if you look at my art, there's not... Eh. You look at my art and you can tell it's my art. But if you look at certain people's art, it's just what's popular at the time. You know, it's it's big, flashy, you know... You can look back at all the different art styles. You know, you had the, the outer glows, you had the bevels, you had the... Um, the crazy exploding art where it was a white background, but it was just an image exploding color, you know, on the, the white background. And you don't, you know, you can look at a Picasso and you can tell it's a Picasso. You look at a Rembrandt, it's a Rembrandt. You look at a Van Gogh, it's a Van Gogh. You, you know it is just by looking at it, you know. And I just feel like that's lost in art now. I don't feel like a lot of people have their own specific style that they stick with through thick and thin. Um, and I think that's because of, honestly, social media and the technology is just, things are changing, people are finding easier ways to do things and replicate things, and I really feel like the inspiration for art, to be creative, to be unique, to do something different. I mean, it's the same with wrestling, too to be unique, to be creative, to be different, to do something, to, to change the status quo, uh, and just, like, not, like, Warhol, Andy Warhol went out there and just did stuff that did not make sense to the art community, but he is world-renowned, and his paintings go for absurd amount of money, you know, and, like, the dude's got his own museum, but at the time, people were like, man, Warhol's kind of weird, like, his art, kind of strange. It doesn't make sense. It's not our typical piece, you know? And now, it's just, let's get it. Give me all of it. I want, I want, like, one of my goals in life is to own a Warhol. That's one of my goals in life. I want an, I want a Warhol original in my house. Man, I'll just paint you a soup can and call it a day. <laughs> we can buy some Campbell's soup right now. We could, we could. But, you know, that's that's the big thing, man, is, like, I just feel my inspiration is the lack of inspiration. If that makes any sense, like, my inspiration for my art is to just put out constant, good, creative pieces. Where people look at it and go, that's damn good art. I think the biggest compliment I ever had was uh, we were working Project Wrestling. And it was a show that I, I wrestled uh, Jimmy Jacobs. 
and uh, Tim Hughes comes up to me and I shook his hand and I, I thanked him for a bunch of stuff because it was uh, it was my first time seeing him in the locker room and I thanked him for some of the uh, advice that he had given us when we were when we worked um, Uncle Bob and Tim in Rhode Island and I thanked him I just pulled him aside and I was like I just want to thank you like the advice you gave us is far surpassing anything that we would have ever expected to come out of it like it was really good advice and actually helped set us apart from a lot of the tag teams in the area I am forever grateful for that and he's like yeah I've been meaning to actually talk to you I want to talk to you about your art and I was like holy shit like you don't have to know who I am but you know who I am and you also know about my design stuff like that's so cool and he's like you put out quality stuff all the time and I was like what (laughs) like (laughs) you're not one of my friends who's telling me this you're like a guy who I don't really know that well like we've wrestled and we've talked but like we've never talked like this and he's like yeah man you you constantly put out quality stuff like it is it is like fed level pro stuff and I'm like that's all I've ever wanted to hear and like it's stuff like that that drives me to keep doing the crazy different stuff I've been doing like I think my one of my most favorite logos that I've ever done I just pumped out recently and it was the Everest Gloom uh, Halloween um, like old movie poster I, I love that like it looks fantastic it reminds me of the old you know 1930s Dracula Frankenstein which was exactly uh, Bride of Frankenstein was one of the ideas that we had that we wanted to kind of go with it and she goes I just want a few colors on there I want like green orange and purple and I'm like you don't need purple we're gonna go green and we're gonna go orange it's fall it's Halloween season you know style colors this will sell like hotcakes and we did it. I just bumped up all the levels on the photo that we cut out and, like, threw a bunch of, like, horror-esque, like, cutouts in the background and, like, just just went through and just did a ton of crazy stuff. And when I got done, I was like, you know what? This looks exactly how I wanted it to look. And it just made me so happy because it was, like, it was one of those things where I was just looking at it and I was like, uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And then, boom, it's done. And I was like, uh... I probably could have done it better, but it's all right. And her response was that she loved it, you know? And that's, that it's, it's just moments like that that inspire me too, is like when people get the project and I'm like, it could be better. And they're like, it's exactly what I was looking for. And I'm like, really? Like, are you sure? And that's, that's one of the things too. Like I, I saw that and I loved it immediately. At first I didn't realize it was her until I actually read it. That's one of those, those, that's one of those pieces of art that wrestling related or not I would love to hang up in like a media room or like a den you know it it feels like it's a collector's piece I specifically told her I was like if you don't get these printed out in posters you're losing money I I I would buy one I would personally Everest Gloom if you're listening to this which I hope you are um Definitely, definitely get it printed out. Even if it's like an eight by ten. No, I told her. I, I oh, said, full blown movie poster. Blown, I, I said, I said, get eight by tens and get full blown movie posters because you know if somebody buys an eight by ten, they're gonna want it signed. They're gonna want that movie poster to hang up on the back of their door. I mean, let, let's let's put it this way. One of my favorite uh, football teams. Well, I should say my favorite football team, the New England Patriots. The only reason I love the New England Patriots is because of a poster I had when I was a kid. That's literally the only reason. It was a poster I had of Drew Bledsoe when I was a kid. And I was like, I like that team because that poster's cool. And I didn't know any better. Like, I didn't know at the time they were garbage. 
I, w- I wish you would have made better baseball choices. Hey, man, I, I was a Yankees fan growing up, fun fact. And then I did a report on George Steinbrenner in the sixth grade, and I realized how much of a piece of shit he was. And I was like, wow, you're kind of a not good person. You allowed racist coaches to, like, destroy your team from the inside out. So I'm going to like the team that's your rivals now. <laughs> Could have been the Mets. Yeah. That hurt you, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, that hurt. 86 was a rough year for me, even though I wasn't alive yet. (laughs) But, all right, guys, we're going to take one last break, and we'll be back for part three with uh, this interview with Eric Eminon. Stay tuned. Hey, guys, the project here. Here with an important reminder, if you are in need of any graphic needs, whether it be posters, brand new gear designs, or anything of the sort, please visit facebook.com slash IndieCardMedia, your one-stop shop for your graphic needs. Make sure you message Eric Eminon, that's E-M-A-N-N-O-N, and get started today. And we're back, part three here, with Eric Eminon. Eric, who were your biggest inspirations, both professionally, personally? Uh, I know you touched a little bit on it in a previous segment. Um, and what what do you hope that you can do to inspire others? So, uh, answer your first question, the inspirations. Um, inside the ring, it's tough because there's so many. Uh, and it's kind of a generational thing for me. Like, if you ask me, 80s and 90s, it's Piper. 90s to 2000, the Hardys. Uh, 2000s moving forward, it's guys like Sick Nick Mondo, CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, uh, Chris Hero, Cole Cabana. Um, moving into the, the later years, uh, the, the 2010s and moving forward to current, uh, guys like John Cena which a lot of people laugh at, but I'm like, the dude is a genius when it comes to marketing. He's been relevant in wrestling for, what, almost two decades now? Almost. Like... About 16 years? Yeah. So, like, I could only hope to have half the career in the biggest company, arguably, in the world, uh, and make half the money he's made. So, yes, John Cena is one of my inspirations. Uh, (laughs) uh, But guys like Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins... um, Dean Ambrose more specifically because this guy was a deathmatch wrestler for CZW. Like, he got noticed by killing himself. Uh, anyone ever seen the skill saw to the forehead video? Like... It's gross. It's so good. It's gross. But this is a guy who made it to the big show. Um, another one, Sammy Callahan, Jimmy Jacobs. Um, a guy who I got the opportunity to wrestle and pick his brain, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, that's like, that's kind of like the wide array of, you know, everything is just those guys. I just, I watch whatever I can find in, you know, when people tag me in clips and like, one of my favorite most recent stumble upons was, uh, Sick Nick Mondo versus CM Punk at some place like randomly. I think it was like either Illinois or Indiana, but I, I stumbled upon it in Sick Nick Mondo, another deathmatch wrestler, wrestled CM Punk not a deathmatch wrestler in an actual wrestling match and it was pretty good and so it was like one of those random like I found it and was like how have I never seen this match 
Like these are two guys I love, and how have I never seen this match? And I watched it, and I was, I was just taken aback at how good it was. So stick, sticking on that topic, before you answer the the personal part, do you remember what the first uh, large scale wrestling match was that you ever saw? And then, do you remember what the first independent wrestling match you ever saw was? So, the first large-scale wrestling thing I had ever seen, it wasn't even a match, it was the Outsiders invading WCW. That was the first thing I had ever seen. That was my introduction to professional wrestling. Okay. Like, literally, that show happened, and we were watching Nitro. Was it Nitro? Yeah, I think we were watching Nitro. We were watching WCW at my grandfather's house in South Carolina. And it was when the Outsiders were invading WCW. And then the moments after that that I remember, I remember um, very specifically, I remember the Hardy Boys and their tag team ladder match. Um, the first the, ever... The, the uh, TLC match? No, the first no. ever ladder match in Cleveland. The one that was at the... I think it was the Gund at the time. Yeah, um, which is now the Q. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was where they wrestled, I think it was Edge and Christian, and they wrestled for the briefcase for Terry. For Terry's uh, managerial Yeah, in, in like $10,000 as well, I think, was in the bag. Uh, possibly. It was like a... Essentially, it, was when, it was when Michael Hayes was with uh, the Hardys as a new brood, if I'm correct. Yes. yes. And I remember because um, it was King being a, a super pervert, and she, uh, Terry was like, yeah, you just got to climb this ladder, and he's like, you got to... And she's like, yeah, climb this ladder right here. And she's climbing this ladder in a skirt. King's like, ha, 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 And I'm like, yo, wrestling's dope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was just a little kid, so it was funny to me. Um, but I remember specifically watching that match. And I remember the opening because it was a double Irish whip. And when Matt and Jeff both hit the ropes, uh, Matt went under the top rope and came up and guillotined himself in the ropes. <laughs> oh, oh, how I've been ironic. there. How ironic. I've been there. I know those feels, Matt. Me and you, same, same. Uh, but, yeah, I remember that match. Like, that was one of the bigger ones that I remember specifically. Um, it, it just, dude, there was so much, like, wrestling-wise, professionally, that I had seen at once. Like, another standout moment that I tell everybody that I had was uh, specifically Chris Jericho standing on the ramp at SmackDown. Was it SmackDown? I want to say it was SmackDown. Um, standing on the ramp, calling Stephanie McMahon a trash bag, bottom feeding hoe. I specifically remember that promo. Um, I remember the old Raw is War stage. The horrible large Titantron. The, the giant metal beams. Yeah, the giant. That was the other thing, too. It was like, when you look at wrestling back then, you don't realize how close... WWF or WWE wrestling was to being an independent wrestling show <laughs> until you see how bad that stage was. <laughs> um, and then I remember the introduction of the SmackDown Fist. That was another really big moment. Um, what, what about what about on the independent scene? What was the first indie match you remember seeing? So I actually remember uh, my first actual in-person independent wrestling show. It was my first indie show ever. Uh, was a Kayfabe Dojo show. It was the debut show for Kayfabe uh, Dojo in Rochester, New York. Um, I remember Hellcat coming to the ring with, at the time, Fury, formerly known as Brian Eminon, as one of his, like, henchmen. And I remember looking at my buddy Francis and going, me and him are going to be tag team partners someday. And he laughed at me. <laughs> he didn't take me seriously. And then we ended up winning tag titles, like, 
it was like what eight years later seven years later I think it was like eight years later because it was 2000 um but like after that that's when I started watching independent wrestling very closely um the I think the first real big indie show I remember the the one that I like specifically sought out was the um, Tournament of Death 2 highlights from uh, Brutal Butcher Shop on YouTube where Sick Nick Mondo took the plunge off the building mm. it was so gross <laughs> hit the but ground. it stood out to you oh yeah like that's one of those I remember he um he did the uh, the electric chair gimmick into the table off the rider truck, and then the weed whacker. Yeah. And then the top of the building, and like those were three moments that just stood out. Like I remember those. I remember watching that video because um, that was my first introduction to a tray you. <laughs> as well, because that I was forgot. that was the that was the song on the music video. Was that was the that was uh, lip gloss and black by Atreyu. Yep. And I remember that, like, that was my first real introduction to hardcore. And, like, I was into punk rock at the time, but, like, I was like, oh, hardcore, all right. I, I, I like where this is going. And then it just grew from that to post-hardcore. And, but, yeah, that was, like, my one big indie show, like, I sought out. And then after that, it was just whatever. Because at the time, like, YouTube wasn't really that big. And, like it was hard to find stuff like tapes wise yeah you had to like that was like I grew up in a weird time in wrestling man like I grew up during the end of tape exchanges and like just like buying like indie wrestling tapes to DVD sales and like that being the big thing and now like on-demand streaming. Like, on-demand <laughs> streaming, digital platforms, yeah, man. Yo, it's so weird to me that, like, tw- almost 20 years ago, it was just VHS tapes. And sometimes like, does that blow your, quality. Does that blow your mind or what? Oh, like, every day. Every day, man. I look at I look at my DVD copy of Aladdin, I'm just like, I remember when I got you on VHS. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> oh, like the different colored VHS plastics? Oh, yeah. Orange, blue, green, purple, white. Like, Writing your all, own labels. What are these made out of? Writing your own labels for everything. Oh yeah. <laughs> or, like, Scratching tape, out something. The tape was re- so worn <laughs> that you actually had to put your own label on it. So it was like a Disney VHS, but there was just no way that you could tell that it was Aladdin anymore because you'd played it so many times. Not wrong. Not wrong. <laughs> so so now, uh, did we touch on the personal? No. So, personal, like, my personal inspirations for pro wrestling is, like, my grandfather. My grandfather, I, I can't remember if he ever actually saw me physically wrestle in person. I know he'd seen videos of me, um, but when I was starting to wrestle professionally, he was in South Carolina still. So, I think he only ever got to see me wrestle via, like, video. Um... So like that's that you know that's kind of tough for me because he was one of the reasons I wanted to do this, and uh, it was it was rough, man. But like he's one of my big inspirations, and like between like him and my dad, those are like the two driving forces. When I say my grandfather, my my papa, my grandfather, my uh, my my mother's father, and 
yeah, like, those are my two, like, personal, like, pushes to, like, want to be where I'm at and do, like, well. Um, and, like, my relationship with my dad was never really good, like, when I was a kid. And it only got better as I got older. Once I became a father, I think that's really when it blossomed into what it is now. Like, I talk to my dad almost every day. And, like, between him and, like, I want to give my kids the life that I wanted when I was young. And so, like, that's another driving force. And then, like, I want to be able to pay back my wife, like, somehow for all the support she's given me over the past seven years, you know? Um, Because that's another thing. Like, my wife's first... My wife's first actual wrestling match, seeing me live, was a ladder match. Oh, fantastic. I won, by the way. Oh, well, at least you had that going for you. I won... I did a swanton off the top of a ladder. She lost her mind. Uh, and she was like, I'm going to have the man's babies. I th- think she was pregnant at that time, too. Oh, see? There you go. There you go. I'm almost positive she was pregnant then. But, yeah. That was um, that was supposed to be my trainer's retirement show. We never retire in professional wrestling. <laughs> we just come back and we're really awful places and tell stories to people and claim that my success is their success I'm not bitter or anything (laughs) Uh, but you know like those are my personal like inspirations to want to do this like and then I like I my big thing has been since you know meeting Tommy and like right before that when I I decided to go on my kind of own path and you know take the past uh, the path left uh, less traveled um, I just wanted to do it for me, you know, to to prove to myself that I could do it, that I had the the potential to do it, that I had the drive to do it. Because really, bottom line, in the, in the, at the end of the day, I'm literally the only one who's going to stop me from really obtaining my goals and me not taking, you know, no as an answer and just kind of getting out in front of whoever I can get in front of and putting on the best show I possibly can. Like that's just that, that drive that, you know, once again, back to my art, that, that, you know, be original, be specific. Like that's, that's, that's my personal inspiration, you know? Okay. Now, what do you hope that the newer generation, a generation of professional wrestlers now, what do you hope that they can learn from your story, what you're doing uh, every weekend you know what they see online uh, when they meet you in person the things that you tell them the, the knowledge that you give to them what do you hope that you can motivate them with what do you hope is the mark that you leave behind as you help others go through professional wrestling fear me no I'm kidding don't fear me I'm, I'm your friend like and I want people to remember that like I'm, not, I'm just I'm literally flesh and bone just like most of you unless you're the green machine Mike Orlando who is superhuman I'm pretty convinced he's a robot oh, he's, he's absolutely a robot he lives up to the name green machine he has cybernetic parts in places where most people don't have parts yeah I'm, I'm convinced that he's not of this earth and um, but no I want, I want people to like know that they can talk to me and I want people to be inspired that a uh, kid who was 140 pounds when he started is now main eventing shows and is running for heavyweight titles and is stealing shows with you know some of the best talent independent or professional in the world you know um and I don't want people to stop, man. I want people, I you know, because every, my big thing is that 
your success is my success. So, and like I've told you and I've told TK is that if I don't make it, if I never get the call, I never get the nod, I never get the, you know, the, the, the contract, like I know my friends got the opportunity and I was alongside them when they got there, you know? And that's my biggest thing is like, if I never get the opportunity to go and be on the grandest stage of them all, I'm okay with it. Like, I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'm okay with it. Like, and that's just, I'm not gonna be happy about it because of the fact that like, I know I can get there if I put the work in. That's, that's inevitable. I'm not going to sit back and not succeed, you know? And I want people to have that same attitude. And I want people to like live by my example. I want people to like grow. I don't want people to feel stagnant. I don't want people to feel upset at their work. I don't want anybody to ever go through what I went through. You know, when I, when I, when I first met you, that was our big thing that we talked about was that we're sick of getting shit on by guys in the area who aren't good and being told we're having our best matches, but nobody's giving us feedback to be better. And like, that's what I just want to give to the next generation. I don't want to be that guy in the back who pats you on the back and says, good job. No, if you had a bad match, I'm going to tell you, you had a bad match and I'm going to give you ways that you can fix it. I'm not going to say you had a shit match. Don't talk to me. Like, I'm going to try and help make you better. I want to leave this place better than how it was when I got here. That's, that's the most important thing. Like, I want people to know I'm personable. I want people to know that I'm a nice guy. Yes, I can be an asshole, but I don't ever mean it maliciously unless you get on my bad side. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I've, I've seen it. And, on both sides. Yeah, and so it's like, you know, I'm like I want people to know that like you can put your foot down, you can speak your mind. Don't be afraid to speak your mind. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, I, I still ask questions all the time. There's been plenty of times where me and Tommy have been talking about wrestling, and I'm like, I'm gonna be honest, I don't understand a fucking thing you just said. And he'll be like, What do you mean you don't understand? You've been doing this longer than me. And I'm like, Yeah, I get that, but the way you're saying it right now just doesn't compute with my nog-nog. Like, no, no speak of the English. Like, can you, can you break that down in Eric terms? And when he does, like, I go, well, why didn't you say it that way in the first place? He's like, because nobody says it that way. And I'm like, you know I'm cut from a different cloth. It might be a napkin, but, like, it's still cut, <laughs> I'm still cut from a different cloth guy. Like, come on. Like, let me be a fancy napkin over here. And, uh, you know, it happens. Like, don't be, don't be ashamed to ask questions. That's the only way you're going to get better. Don't be, don't be ashamed to have a bad match. Like I, like I said before, I get down on myself when I have a bad match, but my idea of a bad match and say Tommy's idea of a bad match, he'll tell me I had a great match. I'm like, uh, uh, and he's like, what do you mean? Uh. That was, like, your second best singles match I've ever seen you have. And you only really started doing singles after we started teaming. And I was like, yeah, but, like, it could have been better and this and that and the other. And he smacks me in the back of the head and says, don't be stupid. It was a good match. Take it for what it's worth and grow from it. And I'm like, you're right. I should stop being such a turd. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, like, it happens. You know, I just I just debuted for this company out in Maine, uh, Pro Wrestling Takeover. And I had so much fun. I, excuse me, I went out there, I was, I was the bad guy, like, hands down, 
absolute dickhead. Like, that's the easiest way to put it. And I went out there and I played the part. I did the role. And I had one match. I have an 0-1 record on there. And I woke up this morning and I was on there. I was literally number 10 in their top 10 for their rankings. They were like, this kid made a splash. He made, he made sure that we weren't bored and he entertained us. And I was like, wow. So stats really don't matter. Championships or props, which once again, I'll take them for the resume. If you're you're handing them out like candy, like I'm there. <laughs> but you got a sweet tooth. I have a sweet tooth. I'm like Yukon Cornelia, silver and gold. I love it all. Uh, but like, bottom line was my goal was to go out there and put on a show. I didn't know until I got there that we were the main event. And so I debuted at this company in the main event against one of their top baby faces. And I told everybody that I talked to, my goal was to go out there and show Maine and New England and that entire region that I don't, I, I shouldn't be slept on. I shouldn't be slept on. I don't deserve to be slept on. I'm done being overlooked and underappreciated. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to steal the show. I don't have to steal the main event because I am the main event. Let's go. And I went out there and arguably stole the show and I had this awesome match that left people going, wow, that kid shouldn't be slept on. He's going to do big things. Like to get hugged and told you're a superstar, that makes you feel good inside. But to be hugged and be told you're a superstar by somebody who doesn't really know you personally outside of wrestling, like, you know they're not bullshitting you about it. They're, they're telling you their feelings because, wow, I just saw an amazing match. Thank you. You know, but long story short, I'm a little long in the tooth with that 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 answer. But TLDR, TLDR, don't be a turd. Ask questions, and I'm your friend. Unless you don't want me to be your friend, in which case I could be a really mean guy. <laughs> so Eric, yeah. Last thing, yeah. Where can we find you on social media? Where can we, uh, where can we view you, learn more about you besides this interview? Let us know. So you can find me on the Instagram. Uh, if you go there, you're gonna see a lot of pics of food, dogs, kids, uh, ridiculous Fortnite snipes where I make Tommy giggle. Um, you're gonna see lots of crazy cool stuff that just—it's it, my life. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get more insight into my life than you would by listening to this interview. And I gave away a lot of personal trade secrets. Um, for that, that's Instagram at ICM. That's I as in ice cream, C as in cream of ice, M as in my God, I would love some ice cream. Underscore M and on. I already told you how to spell that in part one, so you can figure it out from there. Uh, but those who don't listen, it's ICM underscore E M A N O N. Uh, Twitter is at Eric Eminon. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Eric Eminon Pro Wrestling. Uh, that's the link, facebook.com forward slash Eric Eminon Pro Wrestling. Uh, that's my fan page. You can find me uh, on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Eric Eminon. Or if you want to see us all play, uh, twitch.tv forward slash Jump Boost Gaming. Uh, you know, you can watch us play on uh, Fridays for Fortnite Friday and uh, you can see how long it'll take for me to cuss up a storm. It's usually the first 40 to 50 seconds. Um, I drop some fucks and shits wherever I can get those shits and fucks in. So, um, 
you can find me on Pro Wrestling Tees, ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash Eric Amnon. Uh, I do have a Teespring store, Teespring.com forward slash ICM. It's, what is it? It's IC Media Outlet, I think it is. Um, <laughs> there's a lot, man. Um, if you're in Toledo, Ohio coming up August 11th and August 18th, we will be out there uh, wrestling um, singles. We're doing single stuff out there, um, showing that we aren't just a tag team, but we are rabid singles competitors. We're also ravishing. We're handsome. We're pretty. We're pretty good. Uh, <laughs> ooh, we're pretty. We're pretty good. Oh, God. I love it. Um, but, yeah, man, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I think I got everything. Yeah, I think you got everything. I think I got everything. That sounds about right to me. There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of social media, man. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to be everywhere. I'm trying to get my finger in a little bit of everything. You know how it is. I phrasing. No, I think I meant it that way. Oh, all, all right. <laughs> a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> That's how you get in trouble. A little peanut butter and jelly. Oh Lord. PB and J. Lord. Oh, by the way, y'all, you want to know a secret? Uh, I didn't eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from like 13 to 17. No, 13 to 16, and then I had a really bad concussion, and I got put in the hospital, and I didn't eat for like four days. First thing I had to eat was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and it tasted like heaven, and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are my favorite sandwiches. So, remember that. You bring me a jar of peanut butter at a wrestling show that's sealed, I will love you forever. I'll like you Specifically, specifically, that's sealed. Yeah, yeah, because I don't want anything in there, like <laughs> crushed up rooflin or... Like a I want cube. Yeah, I just yeah. <laughs> I want I want a freshly sealed jar of Jeff peanut butter. No, you don't want some pubic butter? No. 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 Um but if, if anybody brings me a jar of peanut butter to show, I will literally hug you forever. Like I love peanut butter. It is my favorite thing in the world. So just keep that in mind. If anyone's listening and you're feeling froggy, please for the love of God, <laughs> bring me a jar of peanut butter. And if you're feeling, if you're feeling like really generous, like donate some money to Jump Boost Gaming and uh, help help get us to the next tier of uh, online video game streaming because you know we love to play. <laughs> but yeah, man, that's it. Thank you for having me. It was of a lot course. of fun. It was a pleasure having you. So remember, either give Jump Boost Gaming money or bring me peanut butter. I feel like we're going to get more peanut butter. Don't be an asshole. These are life lessons. These are life <laughs> lessons with Eric coming on. <laughs> Bring me peanut butter and don't be an asshole. Uh, always tip your waiters. And don't eat yellow snow. Those, that's, that's, uh, how you, that's, it? that's how you're going to succeed <laughs> in life. Bring me peanut butter and don't eat the yellow snow. And don't be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again, Eric, for, for being on. I appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. Guys... If you like what you're hearing, please listen to the other episodes down below. And uh, I'll catch you next time for episode 12. See ya. And please, one last thing. Always hashtag trust the project.